Hey, this is Dr. Mike Barnett. It is an awesome privilege to fill the pulpit every Sunday at the First Baptist Church of Ocean Springs, Mississippi. Having you listen to our messages on this podcast is an incredible blessing as well. And I pray that you will be encouraged in the Lord as you listen. It is vital that you commit yourself and your family to the Lord through the ministry of a local church. While it is a great blessing to have you listen to our messages, no one will be able to minister the Word of God to you or your family like a local pastor. So please do not consider this podcast as a replacement for your presence in your local church on Sunday. Be faithful, get connected, and God bless. If you have your Bibles with me, with you this morning, please open them up to 2 Peter chapter 3. Hey, Coop, good to see you. Coop always says hi to me down there and talks to me when he goes to children's church. He's my, my good friend. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. As we continue our journey through this book that is teaching us how to bear the truth of God during trying times. 1 Peter taught us how to bear witness and testimony during hard and difficult trying times of persecution. But here, 2 Peter teaches us how to bear the truth during times of false doctrine, false narratives, that which is contrary to the Word of God, the philosophies of men that permeate our culture and our society. I want you to do me a favor right now. I want you just to get it in your mind and take your vow that you will not be distracted if the electricity goes out. I promise you I won't be distracted if the electricity goes out. I'm going to keep on preaching and, um, and all, but maybe God will continue to say to us, let there be light. But if the screens blink, which sometimes they do, we got some protections on those screens to keep being blown up by lightning. So just be aware of that. Can you, can you say amen to that? Because what I've got to say is going to answer some questions that I've heard through the years about what this text means. And I don't want you to miss it because after I'm finished preaching it, I'm not going to be there for a while. I'm moving on, all right? I'm just kidding. I'll answer any question you have if I can. If I can't, Glenn Lowry will. But uh, in this section, this third chapter of Second Peter, uh, five things Peter wants us to know in light of false teaching and false doctrine that's coming our way. All of it is set off. Each one of those five truths is set off by the word beloved. You can read about this in the little booklet that we uh, distribute that you can pick up on your way out, the, the preaching guide that we publish. And it kind of highlights for you that word beloved. But as I read this chapter and saw that word beloved five different times, I think of how comforting and encouraging, motivating and wonderful it is to be beloved, not only by Christ, but to be loved in Christ. That song we sang today that says, I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is because we are the beloved in Christ Jesus when we are born again. And He loves us as no one else can with a perfect Love, and He loves us with more effect than anyone can. He is our Savior, and we are beloved in Him. And our text today speaks 
to the Savior's patience. Beloved, our Savior is patient. Aren't you glad that God is patient? He is patient with me, I promise you. Let us read this wonderful text of Scripture. But, beloved, verse 8, be not ignorant of this one thing. In other words, don't be ignorant of this. You've got to get this down. That one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Burned up. Now, if you were to take as many commentaries as you could buy on 2 Peter chapter 3, and you, let's say, if you were to purchase 15 commentaries, you would have 15 different explanations of this text. What does it mean one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day? You would find people who spiritualize this. You would find people who have all kinds of explanations. Some people have even used uh, this text to date the coming of Christ and be real particular about the date of the coming of Christ. And uh, all kinds of explanations, and many of them are valid, and many of them will warm your heart. And then some of them are just plain nuts, just crazy. And you could just read all kinds and spend all your time reading and reading and reading about what this means. A day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day to our God. But I will tell you that like every commentary, whether a good one or a bad one, the Bible sheds a lot of light on the commentaries. The Word of God itself. And so what we're going to do, instead of me boring you with a list of different explanations about this, aren't you glad for that? I'm just going to keep it in context. I'm just going to keep it right in the context of what Peter, the author, is writing in the inspired Word of God. That's how you interpret Scripture. You keep it in context. That's one of the the main keys to interpreting Scripture correctly and accurately is to keep it in context. So let's look at the context. Well, we began talking about the context, the immediate context last week. We've been talking about the context all the way through First and Second Peter. But the immediate context begins in chapter 3, verse 1, which we preached on last week. Peter is addressing these scoffers, these people who are bringing about scoffing arguments and they are doing away with the doctrine of creation and they are doing away with the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. And the Bible says that they do so because they are willfully ignorant because they pursue their own lusts. One thing we learned last week 
is that those who will, who will deny that God created the heavens and the earth and those who will deny that Jesus is soon to come do so not out of intellectual arguments. They're not being intellectual. They sound intellectual. They have enough letters on the back of their name to be intellectual. But their arguments are not intellectual. They are moral. It is all moral and spiritual. They want to remain in their sin. They want to condone sin. So they have to do away with the God who created them and do away with creation. So they will not be accountable to a higher power. And they do away with the second coming of Christ saying, everything's just going on as it always has. God, this God's not going to judge sin. The God I think of, the God I fabricate is not going to come back and judge sin. And they don't want to deal with the judgment of their sin, so they just do away with the doctrine. Let me prove to you right now that and we have a perfect example uh, before us about the arguments of such people not being moral or not being intellectual. Picture this, a brilliant lady, no doubt high IQ, makes her way up in the field of law to the point that she is appointed by presidents to serve in the courts of our land. Her brilliance has brought her to the point where she is now a candidate for the Supreme Court of the United States of America. A brilliant lady. And she's asked a question by a congressman. What is a woman? And she says, I don't know because I'm not a biologist. Now, folks, this lady is no dummy. She is a brilliant lawyer. She is, is of such brilliance that she is recognized in our nation as someone qualified intellectually to serve on the Supreme Court of the United States. And perhaps the greatest intellect of all, she is a woman herself. Amen. You tell me their arguments are intellectual that is a moral argument that's good preaching whether you're mad at me right now or not frankly I don't care amen I care less what one out about what the lost ungodly Christ denying creation denying second coming of Christ denying world thinks about me amen hallelujah I care about what Miss Tracy thinks about me. I better be true. And so I want to tell you it is not an intellectual argument. And Peter addresses that. And last week we learned you have to answer the scoffers by, in terms of the Word of God. And that's what Peter did. He took them back in Scripture. And he showed where God did create the heavens and the earth and did create man. And we are accountable. And he did show where God does judge sin. And he laid down the foundation to say God's character does not change. He one day, at one time, judged sin, the whole world, by a flood. Next time, he's going to do it by fire. God's character does not change. He shared that with us. But if you will notice in our text, he says, But, beloved, don't be ignorant of this one thing, 
One day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness. The some men who count slackness are those scoffers. And Peter says, oh, they're going to say it's not coming, it's not coming, or if it does come, it's not going to be what you say it is. And Peter says, not so. God, our Savior, is patient. And he tells us who are born again, redeemed by the grace of God, he tells us, don't be ignorant of that. Don't forget that. Hold on to that truth. And then he explains that truth for us. Don't let it be hidden from you. Don't let the scoffers distract you from this truth. And then he gives us God's perspective on time. God's perspective on time. Let me read it again. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, as a thousand years, as one day. Now what does that mean? Well, in the context, he's talking to us about God's time clock. The way God views time. The scoffers are saying, since the beginning nothing's changed, you people saying God's going to judge this planet and judge sin, you're all washed out. It's not going to happen. It hadn't happened yet. Surely it would have happened in the medieval times. We were so brutal. Surely it would have happened... Uh, when Germany was on the rampage in, 30, in the 30s and 40s, surely it would have happened. You people are just crazy. Well, Peter says, brethren, Christian people, don't be ignorant of this. The lost world is willfully ignorant of it. They're not going to listen to intellectual arguments. They're not going to listen to the authority of the Word of God. They're not going to do that. They're, they're, they are, as long as they are holding on to their sin, they will not see this truth. But you need to see it. And he tells us about God and time. Let me just give you a few things about God and time that explains this very general statement. First of all, it means God is outside of time. Like a watchmaker makes a watch, but he exists outside of the watch. If he had never made the watch, the watchmaker would still exist, wouldn't he? Well, God would still exist if he had never created anything. This is how it is with God. God created time, and if he had never created time, he would still exist and still be God. He doesn't need us to be God. When you get saved, you don't make Him your Lord and Savior. You surrender to Him as your Lord. And He becomes the salvation that He offers is applied to you by grace through faith. He's God whether we're here or not. You say, well, when did He create time? Well, that's very simple. All history began, and it's recorded in Genesis 1. In the beginning. Beginning is a statement about time. Right? Have you began supper yet? Well, that's a statement of time. In my language, that means, have you started eating? Well, God, in the beginning, created all time. That's when it started. The second statement is, 
is not only God outside of time, but as a result, God is not bound by time. That's what that statement means. We are bound by time. We are a slave to time. Most everything we do has time connected to it. Everything we dread is connected to time. Everything we love is connected with time. We celebrated two things that have time connected to it today. We celebrated the 50-year assault on the Constitution of the United States with SCOTUS making its decision this week. We celebrated 63 years of marriage for a Christian couple. Everything we do, celebrate, condemn, is often, most of the time, connected to time. We cannot extend a day, nor can we shorten a day, although we try to do it twice a year. Do we not? We are bound by time and is not bound by us. We are a slave to time. When a man is happy, he says, I wish this day would never end. But when he is sad and burdened, he says, I wish this day would end. Well, for the happy man or the sad man, that day does not end until God's created order says it's over. Period. We are bound by time. God is not. God has an established creation And he is not bound by time. The third thing we learn from this is that God is immutable in time. He never changes. He is eternal in his existence. He is eternal in his being. He is eternal in his person. On the mountain in the desert, Moses said, who do I say sent me? As he talked to the burning bush, the incarnate God, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus. And God said, you go tell them, I am. He didn't say, go back and tell them I have been. He didn't say, go and tell them I will be. He said, tell them I am. I am the self-existing and eternal God. God's dwelling existence has no past and it has no future. It is immeasurably the present, the great I am. He is immutable in time and never changes His character. That's how He is faithful. He never changes. No shadow of turning at all. He is immutable in time. Another thing we learn about God is is God acts in time. He performs in time. He shows up in time. Some of the early scoffers in America were the deist. You can read about the deist in American history. They're still around but they were really around back in the founding of our country. They would refer to the watchmaker like I did a while ago, but instead of saying he's still in existence with or without the watch he creates, the deist would say, well, God, the the watchmaker makes the watch, he winds it up, and then he walks away and never messes with it again. And they'd say he's just aloof. 
He doesn't have anything to do with us anymore. He's just turned us over and we're winding down. That's it. That's what he would say. That's what they say. Well, verse 5 refutes the deist because God does intervene. He intervened in history throughout the book of Genesis and he still does intervene in history. God always acts in time. Let me read to you a well-known text of Scripture that often we, we um, it's wonderful, but sometimes we fall short of, of actually um, uh, grasping what he's saying. Ecclesiastes 3, you ever heard this? To everything there is a season and a time. To every purpose under the heaven. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to get, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away. A time to rend and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. What profit hath he that works in that wherein he labors? And he goes on to describe how life under the sun is. And what he's describing in those faithful, wonderful verses that have comforted many of people is the extremes of life. He says there's time to love, time that you read them, and you'll see they're both the extremes in life. The pendulum goes, no, not in the middle. This is life without any thought of God. It just goes from one extreme to another. And if you're in the middle, happy days. If you're on one side, it's glorious. If you're on the other, that's how it is. But I will tell you that verse 15, at the end of that great section of Scripture, says that which has been is now... And that which is to, be, is to be hath already been, and God requires that which is past. And what he says there is, is God has it all organized. God has no past. He has no future. He is always present. He is always present. And he acts in time for us. And then another thing we learn about time is this. When we think of time, we think of the numbers on a clock. Numbers on the clock. The other day I went to have my annual checkup. And the person doing the checkup says, I want you to draw a clock and put it uh, 10 minutes after 2. Draw a clock that says 10 minutes after 2. So I drew a circle and I put the numbers on it. And I did 10 minutes after 2. I wonder how many people in there, well, the young generation do that. She said, I'm so glad you got it right. And I thought, well, what do you think I am? I mean, she says, I'm so glad you did it this way. She said, we had an 85-year-old man in here the other day, and I asked him to draw 10 minutes after 2, and he drew a digital clock. I said, that man's a brilliant man. That's a genius. I, wanna, I wish I had him in my church. And I may have. But I want to tell you, God does not look at time always in the same way we do. 
We look at it as one, two, three. We look at it in terms of years. We look at it in terms of months. We look at it in terms of weeks and days. And we look at it in terms of a lifetime. When I was in college, I got to spend some time with Dr. W.A. Criswell, one of my heroes. And we were in his office. And before we left, he said, let us pray. And he knelt down with me and we prayed. And he said, dear God, with me and my buddy with him, he said, take these two men and bless them. And he said, now, he says, my days have become weeks. My weeks have become months. My months have become years. My years have become decades. And my decades have become a lifetime. He said, and these men are young. And so I want to say, that's how we look at time. But God seems to approach time in terms, not chronology. Now, He does give us some chronological time. He told Noah that it would be 120 years and He'd bring the flood. He, he gave Daniel some specific time periods. He does do that for our benefit. But overall, God works in times of conditions, in terms of conditions. For example, He told Abraham... Your people are going to be enslaved for 400 years until the iniquity of the Amorites is fulfilled. Until my patience is gone and I judge the Amorites and I'm going to use you to do it. So he's looking in terms of conditions. When will Jesus come back? Well, read Matthew 24 and 25 and you see there's certain conditions that will be met when Jesus comes back. God works in time in terms of conditions. When the conditions are met, the end will come. And He knows when the end will come. God has not given us a calendar date for His return. He said we cannot know. But He has laid out the conditions for us to watch and to be ready and to be evangelistic and to fulfill our mission. And I want to tell you, I see the conditions, and God sees them too. It seems the conditions are ripe for the harvest. Amen? Never before have we ever had what we have in our nation, and I'm sure in the whole world, when the conditions are met, and His patience is done. Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah the prophet was called to preach, he saw the glory of God and he saw his own sin and he, he, he was cleansed. And, and the Lord said, who will go for us? And Isaiah said, well, where do you want me to go? Nope. He said, here am I, send me. And God said, then go and preach to these people. And Isaiah said, how long do you want me to preach, Lord? See, we're bound by time. But God looks at time in terms of conditions. God said, till it's all over and not a one of them are listening to you anymore. And the cities are waste and the nation's destroyed. That's how long. That's the condition when you will quit preaching. Boy, isn't that a great way to begin your ministry. 
I'm calling you to preach. I say, oh, good, hallelujah. Well, don't hallelujah too quick. You're going to be a failure. They're not going to listen to you. God acts in terms, in time, in terms of condition more so than He does chronology. And that is a wonderful, wonderful blessing for us. You say, how's that a blessing for us? Well, the Christian is told, don't be ignorant of this. Don't be ignorant of these things. Don't let it be hidden from you. Because it is an incredible blessing and an incredible encouragement for you. Let's just look at it and see real quickly. First of all, it's a blessing for us in terms of our Savior. In terms of our Savior. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. When His orchestrated conditions were fulfilled, Christ came. Our Savior came. It's incredible the conditions that were met when our Savior came. Rome dominated the known world. And that's where Christ, when Christ came. Just think of the highways that built Rome so the spread of Christianity could have an easier time going around the world. Just think of a centralized government. Did you know when Jesus was born, it was the first Roman emperor to be called the August One, the sole ruler of Rome? And it's as if God laughed out loud and sent Jesus to be born, laid in a manger to say to Rome, Ha, 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 you think you have the ruler of the world, but he's right here. Amen. In the fullness of time, God acted. When the conditions were right, in His providence and sovereignty, God acted. What about in terms of your sin? Well, the Bible says in Romans 5, For when we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. But God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Notice the references to time. When you were yet without strength. When you were yet sinners. That's when the Christ came. The condition, our sin, and the response of God, the work of God, the act of God, coming to the cross to die for us. What about your, your struggles in life? If God acts in time concerning conditions for the Savior and for your sin, don't you know that what you're enduring right now, God will act when the conditions are met in His perfect timing. In His perfect timing. Read 1 Peter. That's what that's about. Read Ecclesiastes. That's what that's about. What about our salvation? Romans 8, 28. Let me show you something wonderful. This is a great blessing. And notice the references to time. He says, And we know that all things work together for good that love, to them that love God and who are thee called according to His purpose. For whom he did, that's a reference to time, for no, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, 
them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. That's a wonderful truth about God's work in time. Think about it. When we are saved, a person has come to Christ, we say, okay, it's time for you to be baptized, be obedient to the Lord. That's your first act of obedience. And after that, we want to place you with some people who know the Lord and have grown in the Lord, and they're going to help you grow in the Lord. It's called discipleship. And you're going to grow in the Lord, and it's going to take time. That, that sanctification aspect takes time. And then one day, one day, you're going to go to heaven, or one day the Lord's going to return, and you're going to be raptured on to glory, and you're going to be glorified, and you'll have a glorified body. And we look at it in terms of a clock. Right now, if you're saved, you and I are being sanctified. We're growing in the Lord. There was a time when we were born again, and we were saved. Now, another reference to time, now we're growing in the Lord. And then one day, we will be glorified. But notice how God expresses that. He doesn't mention in Romans 8 the process of sanctification. He jumps from you being predestined, foreknown and predestined, to be conformed to the image of Christ. He jumps past this process right now and jumps to glorification. God says, I have already glorified you. And you look at God and say, God, have you gotten a good look at me? And you're telling me I'm glorified? God, are you serious with all my baggage? You think I'm glorified? But God says, well, with you it's a process, but with me it's a done deal. I've had people tell me, Preacher, I want you to pray for me because i got to go meet some people tomorrow and I might lose my religion. Well, you might lose your religion, but you won't lose your relationship with Jesus. You know why? He's already glorified you. It's a done deal with Him. He looks at you just like He looks at Jesus. He sees the completed act, the finished product. He sees from time to eternity. Amen. How do you think Ephesians says you're seated with Christ in heavenly places right now? That's how God looks at you. That's how God looks at you. Isn't that a blessing? Well, act like it is, folks. You're just sitting there like a bump on a log. Act like it's a blessing. Amen. You can't lose your salvation because God's already done it. Amen. That's good preaching whether you're a bump on the log or not. Well, the scoffers say, all fooey on that. The very truth they resist, they deny, they mock and ridicule about Jesus not coming to judge the world is exactly what we're talking about today in our text. Because God is outside of time. That means He can never run out of patience. And now what we see, we have seen God's perspective on time. Now let's look at God's patience in time. Verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise. Mr. Slacker, Mr. Uh, Mr. Scoffer, He's not slack concerning His promise because He has a whole different perspective on time than you do. He is eternal and, and you're just here on earth for right now, so you think. 
Complete different perspective on time, Mr. Scoffer. But God rather is patient, sir. Ma'am, He is patient. And He's not willing that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is not slow. He is not slacking. He is long-suffering and patient. And He is calling a people unto Himself, wanting all men and women and boys and girls to come to repentance. He is patient with sinners. That's why He has not come yet. Because the condition is not met. He is not outside of time twiddling his thumbs saying, I want to take a look, but I won't look. I, I want to, I want to, I, I, I just want to, I'm just going to stand up here and wait and wait and see what happens. That's not God. The Savior is not waiting. The Savior is working. And he is patiently working, drawing people to Christ. Drawing people to salvation. We, we're not going to sing that song, The Savior's Waiting to Enter Your Heart. He's not. He's working to enter your heart. Amen? I know I might have just ruined some of you and you're mad at me because I took away your favorite hymn, but it's the truth. Amen? He is working to enter your heart. Let's change the words. It's probably free to do that. He's working. Constantly working. Willing that all men... Listen, you know what? There's some people who say that Jesus didn't die for the whole world. I want to tell you what. He doesn't want any one of you to perish. He wants all men to come to repentance. That's why He put us on missionary missions. That's why He tells us to be a missionary church. That's why He tells us to share the gospel. That's why He tells us to pray for the lost. That's why He tells us to live His holy standard out in front of men and to have the joy of the Lord before the world and to love one another so the world will know we are His disciples. And He's not willing that anyone should come, that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And I want to tell you, the most rebellious act against the will of God that you can commit is to perish without Christ. That's the only thing. Used to be a gospel track out called Seven Deadly Sins. It was trash. I want to tell you something about sin. They're all deadly. The wages of sin is death, not just seven of them. And I want to tell you the greatest sin, the greatest among all sin, is to tell God, you don't want me to perish, I don't care. I don't care. I'm on my own. And you'll die and go to hell. And that's the greatest sin against God. You have violated His sovereign will. You violate His patient will. Not willing that anyone should perish, but all should come to repentance. He is patient. But I will tell you that His patience is long-suffering, but it is also limited it's limited by His sovereignty. The old timers that I used to hear preach would say, when that last person is saved, Jesus will come. Now look, I know there's a lot of theologians who may doubt that and scramble about that, but I just want to tell you this. 
Can you imagine if you would be the one to win the last soul to Christ that met the conditions of His coming? Can you imagine that? If you can imagine that, you better get busy because you're holding Jesus up. Amen. (laughs) But I want to tell you what, people aren't being saved like they used to in our world. They're not. God's patience is limited. And look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. A thief in the night comes unexpected. Those who think God is slow and slacking and those who are scoffing at His return, to them the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Paul tells us, but brethren, you will not be taken. You will not be surprised. He's not coming as a thief in the night to us. We know He's coming because we believe the Word of God. But one day His patience will no longer be extended, perhaps at your death for you. Perhaps He deserts you. God doesn't have to offer you grace anymore. God doesn't have to offer you grace one iota. He doesn't have to offer you grace at all. Or it could be the destruction of all creation. Look what he says. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. And the earth also and the works that are in there shall be burned up. The scoffers tell you that earth began with a big bang. But God says you got it mixed up. It didn't begin with a big bang. It began with a big word. Let there be. Let there be. But it'll end with a big bang. Amen. They get it mixed up. Look, lost people get things cockeyed. But that's the destruction of all creation. Many Bible students and scholars believe that Peter here describes the action of atomic energy being released by God. The word translated a great noise in the King James Version means a hissing or a crackling sound. It's real interesting that in the Bikini Islands when uh, nuclear weapons were being tested, the scientists did record crackling and hissing sounds. But the word melt in 2 Peter 3.10 means to disintegrate, to be dissolved. It carries the idea of something being broken down into its basic elements. And that is what happens when atomic energy is released. Absolutely. Heaven and earth shall pass away, says our Lord, Matthew 24, verse 35. And it appears, notice the operative word, it appears that this may happened by the release of the atomic power stored with the elements in the elements that make up our world. However, 2 Peter 3, 7 says that the heavens and the earth right now are stored with fire and only God can release it. I do not believe that our planet will be destroyed by plastic water bottles or hairspray or jet fuel, or trucks. I do not believe it will be saved by golf carts and electric vehicles. I do not. And I don't believe that because I'm, I'm a redneck. 
I believe that because of what the Word of God has to say. I do not personally believe that God will permit sinful men to engage in an earth-destroying atomic war. Peter, no doubt, when he wrote these words in verse 10, had in mind what the Old Testament prophets have said. As a matter of fact, he tells us that in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, I'm going to remind you of what the prophets had to say. The men of God who penned and preached the Scriptures back in the day of the prophets. And he, no doubt, is referring to things like Isaiah 13 and Isaiah 24 and Isaiah 34 and Isaiah 64. Let me read to you. Let me read to you um, this. Let me read to you Isaiah 13. Or yes, Isaiah 13, verse 10. And God is talking about in verse 9. He says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes. The same day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the day of wrath, when God comes to end it all and hold men accountable for their sins. He says, For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. Already on this planet, two atomic weapons have been released in 1945, and none of these things happened permanently. And I will punish the world, God says, for their evil, and the wicked for their iniquity, and I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the holiness of the terrible. The words and the verbiage indicates that this is something God will do. You really believe He's going to hand that over to Vladimir Putin? You believe He's going to hand that over to an arrogant dictator, an angry politician, or a nervous military leader, or any other incompetent leader in our world? God is going to hand over the destruction and the judgment of this planet to evil men? Isaiah says, God says, I will do this. I will do this. And you might say, well, don't you think he'll use nuclear weapons? Like he has to. Look, he's got fire underneath us. He's got fire above us. That's what we learned last week. And that's how Peter tells us it's going to be Destroyed at the day of the Lord. Of course, we are so blessed beyond measure because the heavenly home of the redeemed will not be touched. This planet will be destroyed. This universe will give way. But the Bible tells us in in the most glorious of terms, in verse 13, Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. So this planet and this universe going to make way for a new earth and a new planet. All the great works of man will be burned up. All of the things that man boasts about will be burnt up. The seven wonders of the world will be destroyed, gone. Our great buildings, our great inventions, all of our achievement will be destroyed in a moment of time. When sinners stand before the throne of God, they will have nothing to point to and say, Look what I have done. All they will be able to see is the nail-scarred hands of Jesus and say, That is what I have done. But I want to tell you, God is patient right now. 
God is patient. And we have His grace. Don't spurn His patience. See, folks, people think that it's not... That they, they do not think of the huge sin of arrogance to say, you know, I know I need to be saved and repent, but I'm just not ready. Well, if you know you need to be saved and repent, God says you're ready because you don't know that but by the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible says. But to say I'm just not ready is to tell God, God, I spurn your patience. I spit in the face of your grace and mock at your mercy. I'll come to you on my terms when I am ready. And that's why Isaiah said he is going to judge the arrogance of the proud. We, we just think it's a minor thing. Oh, they can be saved later. They may not be saved later. And, all, and I want to tell you, good intentions aside, they probably will not be saved later because if they're not saved now and not willing to come to the Lord now and spurn His will that they not perish, how arrogant is that? There is nothing good about that, nothing moral about that, nothing decent about that, nothing godly about that. It just proves the wickedness of a heart, whether they're good old-fashioned Mississippians down here in wealthy, nice, comfortable ocean springs or in a slum somewhere. That is the height of arrogance to spurn the grace and patience and mercy of God. And I pray the Holy Spirit is drawing you to salvation now to where you will say it is time. In this time, the conditions are right. God has conditioned this time and given me this time. And I must respond and be born again. I must take my stand with Jesus. That's, a, that's what it means. That's what it means. Let's stand for our song of appeal. This is Cole Andrews, the family minister here at First Baptist Church, Ocean Springs. I want to take a moment to say thank you for tuning into our podcasts and sermons today. We surely hope you have been blessed by the Word of God. I'd like to encourage you to visit our website, fbcosms.com, to learn more about our church. We sure would love to see you in church on Sunday. May God bless you.